Today's guest is David Mercer, CEO of the LMAX Group. The LMAX Group offers institutional clients a platform to trade both FX and digital assets. David has steered the business to become a major challenger to the existing industry incumbents in the FX space and has been somewhat of a pioneer in helping institutional clients begin to trade digital assets. Very excited to have David with us today. Thank you for joining us today. It's Hitsa Patel from Oliver Wyman, Head of our Financial Infrastructure Technology and Services platform. And I'm delighted to be joined today by David Mercer, CEO of the LMAX Group. Hi, Hitsa. Good to be with you today. Thanks for making the time, David. It'd be great just to start out by giving a brief intro for those who are not familiar with the LMAX Group around uh, what you guys do. Okay. Well, what we do, I guess what I, what I do as ostensibly... Look the same by virtue of title for the last 12 years. I'm CEO of LMAX Group. Uh, we operate five currency exchanges globally, trade $25 billion a day, the world's leading institutional cryptocurrency exchange, and we got 11 offices globally and sort of 270 staff. But it wasn't always that way, Hitson. So I took over as an interim CEO of effectively a failed startup 12 years ago. Uh, March the 31st, 2011, when the chairman knocked on my door and said, "Will I take a look at something. Um, I more or less said no, but then as it was uh, just down the road from uh, where I lived, I came and had a look. And what I discovered when I looked under the hood was they made all the classic startup mistakes, hadn't completed the product, focused on the wrong segment, had spent all their money. But under the hood, they had this fabulous world-leading technology that I thought might be able to change a market they hadn't even thought about. So LMAX stood for London Multi-Asset Exchange. I think it was focused on disintermediating the, the retail equities market. And um, I kinged that immediately and focused on the world's largest institutional market being uh, foreign exchange, which trades $7 trillion a day. So and in the midst of that transition, when I'd gone from being Interim to full-time CEO, we did an MBO in 2013. That's, that's when you kind of know you really have skin in the game. Um, I don't know what possessed me. I'm not sure I'd do it again, but myself and nine others, known as the garage crew here at LWAX, um, wrote checks with their own, with their own, uh, with their own money and bought the company, did, did this MBO. At the time, to be clear, we were losing £800,000 a month. Um, the first month I walked in, we lost 1.5 million pounds. The company that I bought had enough cash on the balance sheet to exist with that burn rate for another 10 months. So as I say, I mean, if I had my time again, would I be brave enough? But we saw something, we thought we could revolutionize the FX market. We could bring greater transparency to the market. We followed a plan and because we had skin in the game, you really had that effervescence, that discipline, that motivation, that rigor to make it work. And we got to break even within three years of that. The rest is kind of history in that we proved the concept. 
I think I bumped into you the first time um, back in 2021 when we did the deal with JC Flowers. So we sold 30% of the business of Flowers at a valuation of $1 billion. So that was a sort of pretty roller coaster ride if you look at that first 10 years. Very transformational yeah. for me in terms of the role, in terms of transformational CEO um, and sort of owner, entrepreneur CEO. And right now, the challenges are, you know, very different. Everyone looks at this billion dollar company and says, oh, it must be easy now. But actually, it might be the hardest time of all because now you have to transition a company that's had some success into a company that can create a legacy and create a company that will withstand good markets and bad markets and still be in existence in 10, 20 years' time. So in a nutshell... We still do the same thing. We still operate FX exchanges and crypto exchanges, but the job's changed a lot in the last 12 years. That's awesome. It's quite the journey. And it's interesting that the number of people who tell me that these interesting journeys always start with a no. And uh, I have underlined the word garage crew as well, but uh, I think you might need to upgrade the wardrobe if you want to carry that more externally as a garage crew. So let's stay historic. You know, there was already a couple of platforms, right, in the FX space and where you where you decided to park up. Like, what, what drew you to this idea that it could be done better? I think, you know, probably the culmination of 30 years of learning. Now, I've been in capital markets over 30 years. And throughout those 30 years, what you've seen is wider market access. And if you like, democratization of the markets. You know, when I was a, a young fella sitting on, on a desk in an investment bank, they told me that every seat costs $250,000, $300,000. Bear in mind, that's 25 years ago. And actually, to have all the data required to trade, to put a trade on, to trade fixed income in regular markets at the time, would cost about $1.5 million per head. Um, just for those specific traders. Then you had the advent of uh, electronification of the market. You had direct dealer access. You had people being able to trade from a portal, as it was called back in the day. And I sort of lived, if you like, through this democratization of, of the market. And when I looked at the foreign exchange market, the incumbents are big names, massive name in Chicago, a massive name in, in London. But you sort of go, well, does that mean they win forever? Is foreign exchange perfect? And it was far from perfect. So I, if you like, took all the learnings I had over, over 30 years and said, there has to be a better way or there has to be an alternative. It also happens the world's largest capital market. So yeah. it can't be owned by a duopoly. So if you like, Elmax Group for me is just seeking to achieve everything I've been focused on for the last 30 years, and that's democratization of financial markets. Yeah. I spent a lot of time around 2009, 2015 as a consultant advising on all this market structure reform post-financial crisis. And we'd always draw these charts around the level of electronification and FX was always at the top end and looked as like the golden child. And then there was equities and everyone was poking their finger at credit and rates. And interesting hearing your approach, which would be actually, I'm going there, right? I'm going to go there and I'm going to do that better. So yeah, it's an interesting reflection. Talk to me a little bit about how 
FX has got you into crypto digital asset space. For those out there who want to understand, what's the relationship there? What's kind of got you to bring those two asset classes together in your group? That journey started six years ago. So in 2017, my largest clients outside of the banks, so the proprietary trading firms, you know them well. So it's the big guns at the top of every futures exchange, every asset class in the world, in Chicago, London, and New York, said, now, David, we're trading a lot of this new asset class. Have you heard much about Bitcoin and crypto? What we need is some institutional framework, institutional style technology so that we can mitigate risk. Because ultimately, we're trading in this retail market all around the globe on pretty high latency, so slow and ponderous technology. We need someone we can exit with like women participants. We kind of thought that was interesting. I'd first come across Bitcoin. We had a, a session in here in, um, in LMAX Group in 2013, and we said, look, it's too early for us. We don't know enough about it. It doesn't sit within um, our FX roadmap. So we left alone for three or four years. Maybe that was the wrong decision. Maybe it was fortuitous. So we took a deeper look in 2017. And actually, if you look at the, the most traded pairs today, BTC USD would still be the biggest at 45%. Back in 2017, it was around 60% of the whole crypto market. And actually, just by that mnemonic, BTC USD, look, this looks like a currency. This paid like a currency. This charts like a currency. The, the practitioners who want to trade it are currency leaders um, or their market makers. So we did a bit of research internally and discovered that actually everything we built in terms of exchange framework within our exchange fitted Bitcoin, fitted Ethereum. One problem, there was no prime brokers and there was no great banking of this product. So we had to upskill ourselves and learn how to integrate with the blockchain and effectively become custodians, so become our own bank. So that was the biggest challenge. But ultimately, it took us six months really to go from field to fork or from that first request to launching LMAX, LMAX Digital. And I mean, just if you roll forward five years, you know, we've had a lot of success with there. Obviously, the, the tops and tails of, of the market, 2021, we were clearly the number one institutional crypto exchange and only one retail venue traded more Bitcoin than us. But when I looked at it overall from a group perspective, Bitcoin was actually our eighth most traded currency pair that year. It dropped a little bit last year, 2022. Into but just a tenth position looked very much like a currency. It still does. Don't worry. Don't poke me, regulators. It's fine <laughs> if it's a commodity. By the way, I have no problem with Bitcoin and Ethereum being being commodities, and I have no problem if um, some others become securities. But for us, the price action, the price formation, the people who traded it, the way it traded, the price discovery yeah. mimicked a lot of what we did in currency markets. Yeah. So hearing you describe that sounds like a demand-driven start to the journey. Sounds like there's a lot of overlap from what you, the way that you built and run the platform on the, on the FX side. The other thing that strikes me is, again, another one of your, what seems like a contrarian view, when it seemed at that time when we were looking at the market, everyone was running to the retail side. Yeah. 
of the digital asset side and you guys have, have parked up and focused on the institutional side. How do you feel about kind of positioning around that, given it was been a lot more focus on the retail side? I guess it's been a lot more volatile. Just be great to kind of guess, you know, take a step back and reflect on what are the what are the differences, pros and cons have been on the institutional side of this versus the retail side of this one? First of all, institutional or wholesale business is what we do. So we know that well. We build product um, for that market segment well. We build our technology product well for that. Looked at retail markets, both in foreign exchange and in, and in crypto. The key to being good in that segment is all about online marketing, online onboarding, and servicing millions of customers. Um, that is not what happens in the institutional market. You know, pick out the banker's almanac and you'll see a few hundred banks that would be key to you. Proprietary trading firms, there's a few hundred of those that are key to you. But what we did in Almax Global, which is our sort of retail facing or retail broker facing brokerage house, we decided to become the broker of brokers in foreign exchange. So we have 200 brokers as customers. So we can service them well. We can't service 1 million or 2 million customers well. So my point being that if crypto was always going to be a retail product, it might be that LMAX Digital wasn't going to be a big part of the LMAX Group's portfolio. Our belief, though, is that this nascent asset class has something that can sort of promote it to the same value as commodities. If you look at gold, it typically trades in a range of 10 to $12 trillion. Crypto uh, is, has a market cap today of around $1 trillion. So we thought, look, institutions are going to enter this, enter this space, led by the banks. And you've seen things recently with the likes of BlackRock and the investor entering the space. And we thought, we can service that well. And whilst there's only retail flow, then the retail brokers themselves, the market makers on those retail platforms will need somewhere to exit risk and somewhere to, to mitigate risk with institutional partners. So we decided that's our forte, that's our wheelhouse, we'll focus on that. And if you like it, and we'll take a little bit of a bet that this asset class has more than just a retail flavor to it down the line. That's what we thought in 2018 when we launched our Digital. As I sit here today in 2023, that's still what I believe. You know, I believe that blockchain technology, crypto, and tokenization will revolutionize a lot of traditional finance in the, in the years ahead. Yeah. I'd be remiss of me not to ask, given your expertise and your position, I mean, Get your take, really. What's your take on the events that's played out over the last 12 months or so in the crypto digital asset space? I know tons of column inches have been written, lots of lots of voices have been heard, but I'd, I'd, I'd welcome your perspective, David, on how you how you see things. It's been a real challenge, if I'm honest, Hickson, and there's an awful lot of reputational contagion around that. You know, what you've seen is bad actors creating implosion after implosion. It's been hard to know whether you build for what I see as an inevitable digital future or give in to the doom and gloom that those press inches cover. But 
you know, our viewpoint is that it's here to stay and we must persist and try and build fairer markets and a better ecosystem for all. What's, what's clear, though, is that the actions of those bad actors has forced some of the more significant institutions to hit the pause button. So certainly we haven't seen institutional adoption I would have expected in 2022 and 23. But, and this is key, you see, if we look hard, you see a lot of efforts from the biggest players, bulge bracket banks, talking about digitization of assets, tokenization of assets. And you see the biggest um, asset managers in the world launching or applying for ETFs. I think the last time I looked, bulge bracket banks themselves actually had something like $27 billion of um, assets in custody related to crypto. And that's tiny compared to all the assets they have in custody. There's about $200 trillion of assets in custody today. But under the radar, they're still working on it. And I think in the meantime, we're going to have to weather this storm. I hope there's no other bad actors out there, but I suspect there is. We need them to be flushed out, and then we can get on with building an ecosystem that is fairer for all, that works for all. But I think we're still not quite in the eye of the storm, yeah. but the storm is still brewing, and I expect it all to sort of clear, and we can truly move ahead in 2024 and 25. That's interesting. That's a helpful framing. I picked up a distinction hearing you talk. I guess there is digital assets. Yeah. And then there is the digitalization of assets, right? You know, you make that distinction. Just drawing on that point, how, talk to me a little bit around how you see the market structure playing out going forward. And is that an important distinction that you're making? It's massive, Litton. And I wouldn't say we have, we've cracked it. But there's a lot of good things that come out of blockchain technology. Um, just even for one, just the immutable nature of a record. So if you imagine, I spoke to one large bank and they said, you know, we've got 20,000 people running around effectively chasing the same record. Think about the efficiency in the back and middle offices. If counterparts on both sides of a trade are looking at one immutable record. So I think inevitably there's going to be some big bang disruption. If you're not considering how innovative technologies like DeFi and blockchain will disrupt traditional financial services, then I think you're going to be left behind, right? You want to be the right side of this, much the same as we have to be the right side of the internet or the electronification of the markets. But to answer your question directly, look, there's a bit of fear around. If you mention the word crypto right now, you're not going to get a lot of buy-in from institutions as we sit here today in 2023. As soon as you mention using blockchain to tokenize assets or for record keeping or for credit, all of a sudden, they're all ears. So I think, and like some of the biggest banks, you can look at, it's pretty public, you go and look at the JP Morgan on the side of their digital asset group. You have a look at their permission blockchain and Onyx coin. They're thinking about what a market will look like 10 and 20 years from now. Traditional markets today are not perfect, right? Very simple they're a bit clunky and they're built for, they're built for old technology. Simple thing, it's, you know, settlement is 
done in a T plus two basis. That would seem to be outdated. You know, markets open for eight or 10 hours a day if you're looking at the equity wise and only five days a week, that would seem outdated. You and I had rocked up on Mars and we jumped in one of Mr. Musk's spaceships and had to devise capital markets um, tomorrow. It's unlikely we're going to create the same plumbing we currently have. And I think blockchain and the digitization of assets we currently trade is inevitable. And going back to one of my earlier points, that will bring greater ease of uh, market access and if you like, more frictionless access to those markets. And I think that's going to be better for all, whether it be individuals, whether that be institutions. So, you know, we spend a lot of our time at the moment thinking about how the foreign exchange market will look in 10 years' time. And it won't happen in 23, 24, 25, but it will happen with yeah. the and how other markets can do the same. So, look, I think we all need to get on it, certainly, you know, doing your job, I'm sure. Every customer must be looking at that transition and um, what's going to happen in, in their life and in their businesses over the next decade. Yeah, yeah, no, very well put, very well put. One last, one last question on this space before we switch gears. I, I guess uh, one thing that always bugs me is being an advisor and not a practitioner is how sometimes things could be misunderstood and we're not being on the, the front line. What point or a couple of points do you think you would want the world to better understand Oh, about the digital asset space. So you think they may have misunderstood from a practitioner's lens that you'd want to get out there? I think it's good. Back to the last point. I mean, is there a better way? You don't have to be a believer in Bitcoin. You don't have to be a believer in Ethereum, right? Let's face it, but Bitcoin's quite old now. So my challenge to that, that industry and the Bitcoin evangelists is, well, you know, it's time to show up now. It's time to prove your point. It's been around for 15 years. It hasn't transitioned the market as we thought. It's still relatively quite small. But you know, the basis of it was decentralized, anonymous, trustless. Look, regulated markets are going to struggle with anonymous, and they're going to struggle with trustless. They may not struggle with decentralized. So there might be room for you know, permission blockchain at some stage, you know. Anybody wants to trade anything, you want to open an account with you, with Oliver Wyman, you want to open an account with your accountant, with your lawyer, with your bank, or with your broker, you know, you have to fulfill normal KYC. But it's underlying it. What have we learned? I mean, the near instantaneous settlement that we've learned, that we've been performing at LMAX Group with LMAX Digital for, for six years. You know, we, we settled dollars and we settled coin 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that surely has to be a good thing for traditional markets. Why do you have to wait? Why do you have to rush for a Friday night, 5 p.m., right, to get your payments done or to, to hedge your portfolio? Why can't you deal with your climate ritual on Saturday or Sunday? So surely that's better for all. Um, look at the underlying blockchain technology and how you can transfer ownership of assets and how you can stop dealing with paper, how you can look at one record and be certain that that's what you've traded, not wait for some accounting error, some booking error um, that's happening in the front office. So I think look at the power of everything that's underneath. I'm not here today to convince someone that Bitcoin is better than an Argentinian peso or a US dollar. 
There might be something else that comes out of the woodwork. But underlying all of that, the ease of transparency of asset ownership and record keeping is the key learnings we should take away from the advent of crypto over the last 10 years or so. Yeah. The thing I take away from that, hearing you talk, is it's it's about the capability rather than the actual asset itself um, and what it brings. Absolutely. So I'm going to switch gears slightly. And one of the things we like to do for the listeners is to kind of get a bit more insight into life of CEO, life of founder, what can they draw from it and learn themselves. So more with your David Mercer hat on than your, your LMATS Group CEO hat on. But it would be um, great just to talk through and share big challenge you've faced recently, how you how you navigated that, what you take away from it and pass on to others. Wow. The David Mercer hat and the LMATS Group CEO hat are sort of inextricably linked. So my, my, overall, my advice to people is, if you think you can leave one in the office and go home, then forget about it. You have to be passionate about your job and you have to love your job. I haven't worked a day in my life because I love what I do. So number one, it is all encompassing. Um, I still do have fun and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that, but you've got you've to own it and you've got to constantly be thinking about how you can improve it. Look, I think the last, you'll have seen it from your standpoint and you look at a lot more customers than, than me, but the last three years have been hugely challenging for all businesses. And if I look at within capital markets and I look within Almax, it's like a almost a triple whammy. So the business world has just changed so much over the last three years. It's it's compounded. All the changes have compounded at great speed. It's I don't think anyone has dealt with a scenario like this before. But when you come out of this, you're gonna see real changes that could be exciting for us. So I just put my finger on two or three of those challenges. First of all, people, right? They are your asset in any company. That's it. The most valued prime asset. The way they work, the way they behave um, has changed. So fully or partially remote is the question. That brings challenges and opportunity. You have a wider talent pool. Um, you have theoretically lower cost, but higher in reality. You have difficulties in knowledge transfer and training. And actually, what you learn at the end of all of this is that one size doesn't fit all. So you've got to run your company with um, a people-sized problem that is different than it was three years ago. Then, of course, you have economic crises, again, with many of them coming at the same time. You've got rates in recession, and then you've got some of them caused by COVID, some of them are coming anyway, and then you've got the events in Russia and Ukraine, which a unique set of people, supply chain, price problems that we haven't experienced in the Western world, you know, for over 70 years. And then in the meantime, almost in the backdrop of that, you've got this rapid digitization. You know, folks were working from the advent of COVID and before 2019, 2020, people were really analyzing how AI, machine learning, how blockchain technology, how decentralized finance could change the market. And all of a sudden, it's on us all at once. And so you had all those three things in, it's like, wow, now is a good time to be alive. Now is a good time to be in business, but 
it's not just traditional crises I've dealt with in capital markets. You sort of you weather the storm and you come out better the other side, and we have slight changes. I would say the last two to three years, I've seen the extent of change that I probably would normally recognize in a decade or two decades. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting, and it's your people as an asset point is one that strikes me. It, it comes up in an, all of many of these conversations, which I always get use the word irony in the wrong way, but I think it's interesting given we're talking to financial data, financial technology, financial infrastructure businesses that people don't often always associate as people being at the heart of it. And it remains the case. I think that's an interesting reflection that that people does remain the key asset to, to what you guys are, are doing. It's so different these days. It's, you know, it's like, I think whenever I started my business career, you sort of look at a floor of investment bank and everyone had similar skill sets and perhaps similar backgrounds. But now you look at a company like Elric's group, I mean, you're a relatively small company. I've got everything from rocket scientists to graphic designers from 60-year-olds to 18-year-olds, their requirements, that idea of treating them like an asset, making sure they feel valued and enhancing their career is not the same for all of them. And you've got to get it right because I need all of those 16, 18-year-olds, 60-year-olds and the rocket scientists and the graphic and the graphic designers to be coherent to work together to make us a better company. So yeah, it's a it's a fun challenge. I think you have to enjoy the people challenge if you want to run a company, if you want to build a business. Well, it's great just hearing you put that so high up on your agenda, right? When I started out as an intern, won't name the bank, but back in like 2005, it was, you're lucky to be here, in, you know, and, and you'll get what you get. And speaking to people around the, the industry now, it's great that companies like yours are putting people, employee propositions so up high up the agenda. And I think that's giving people who want to be in and around the capital market space a bit more of an option, right, around how it is they want to play it. So um, I think that's been a big shift I've noticed over, over the past two decades. Last one in this space, I guess, is there anything you'd like to share around what you do outside of the professional sphere? Any interests, any hobbies? And how's that played back into what you do as a day job? Yeah, no, I guess sometimes, I think most people have to have external pursuits to sort of clear your mind of business and get out get out of the weeds. So I've done various things, various challenges. So, you know, I trekked to the North Pole. Um, we're in the Guinness Book of World Records for uh, the most northern game of rugby Climbing things like Kilimanjaro, I've just completed a marathon, trail for another one. So when you do all that, most of those things, by the way, apart from, well, even the latest marathon was a team pursuit. And you learn a lot. It's quite nice hitting to not be the boss. I mean, I did the Sydney Hobart yacht race as well, so the Everest of, of yacht racing. And there, I'm the worst sailor of everyone on the boat. And I was just part of the team. So it was quite nice not to have to be a leader. But what you learn, I guess three things you learn that you have to somehow transfer into business in that in all of those pursuits, focus and discipline were are key, are very, very key in that you can't train to run a marathon and also optimize your sprint time at the same time. You've got to just focus on that. And you can't rock up on race day and say, okay, I'm, I guess I can do this 26 miles. No, you have to have the discipline to follow a training plan. So 
In fact, if you run a marathon or, or if you sell a yacht race, that's just the glory day. All the work you've done to achieve that was done previously. So I think that learning that focus and discipline and telling guys at work that what you do now, laying the foundation um, is so key so you can enjoy the success that might be two or three years away. And that's normally the case. I mean, we enjoyed fabulous success at LMAX Group and LMAX Digital in 2021, but we didn't do anything different. We didn't do anything different. We've done all the hard work in the previous five years. I think going on to the previous point about the challenges in business today, probably the biggest thing I learned was that you have to be able to adapt. Having that ability to adapt and pivot is key. You know, I'll talk to you, um, I've looked at the North Pole. I mean, completely not in control of that. The weather is in control of you. In the best light laid out itinerary, you say, right, that's what we're going to do it. That's all going to hit the North Pole. All of a sudden, the weather comes in and you're stuck at base camp for three days or four days. And in fact, it happened at both ends. And then once we're at the North Pole, played the game of rugby, had the world record, couldn't get out. So you're stuck there for it, right? What, what's your coping mechanism? What's your plan for those three days sitting around in a tent? Another one is one of, one of my friends on the, on the expedition was convinced this was a skiing challenge. So he persisted, so we all, we all learned to cross-country ski. We did that. And then you get there and you work out, oh, it's actually quite hilly. These skis aren't going to work. And then you have bits of rock poking out certain places. So ultimately, we ended up trekking. Even, even worse than that, one guy turned up a size 13 feet. Absolutely did not fit the ski. So for him, it was always a trekking challenge. So we had to adapt. We had to pivot. And I think that's the same going back to business today. There's absolutely no way you could say, as I sit here in 2023 and say, David, did you map out LMAX Group perfectly when you walked through the doors in 2000? Absolutely not. I've adapted and I've pivoted all the way. My, my sort of close on that bit, so everything you learn in life, so everything you learn in business is, look, the perfect plan just isn't possible. Perfection isn't possible. Let's control what we can control and then adapt to the rest. I don't think there's enough self-help books out there, David. I think you need to write one. A few things I'd call out there that resonated. I think this, uh, your last point on adaptability, right? Just this whole being comfortable with what's outside of your control. I think over the last couple of decades, we've ever been able to control so many elements and this kind of ongoing optimization, that comes a, a big point. And um, I like your concept of glory day. It's interesting. Often the big event and the big moment is actually the glory day if you've done the practice. And uh, and, and then the final bit that resonates is just enjoying not being a leader in those situations. I guess people probably have the lazy assumption that you enjoy leading. And so therefore, in your pastimes, you'd, you'd be that way as well. So thank you for sharing. We probably could do a whole 30 minutes on that. But let me, let me, bring, <laughs> us to a, let me bring us to a close. The final thing that we ask our guests is to, to share the spotlight. We're trying to raise this idea of community and bring visibility to interesting things that are out there. So I'd love you to throw the spotlight, call out either an individual or a company that's not your own, that is doing impressive things or has impressed you that you think uh, listeners should pay attention to or go out in there and, and look up. I think, you know, the person I'm going to mention doesn't need any shout outs. He runs one of the most valuable companies in the world, but I, I think he doesn't get enough credit. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, 
I think the way he stepped into a massive pair of shoes, did it his own way, and made significant changes to that company are admirable. He would appear to be an amazingly humble character. And what he's done is create new product, ship more product in a less extravagant way than Mr. Jobs, who I was also a big fan of, and delivered phenomenal business results. And dare I say, deliver phenomenal business results with humanity at his core. You know, I think this gentleman could make a difference, not just in business might, but in the world at large. I mean, one of the things he said early on was that privacy is a basic human right. He deserves privacy. He came out as the first openly gay CEO of any future 500 company. He didn't do that for himself because he guarded his privacy and he has a right to that privacy. He did it for all the other up and coming young leaders to show them it was possible. There's no way in the world this gentleman wanted to be a flag bearer or waiver for that, but he stood up not just for the LGBT community, but for all minorities and everyone who's experienced discrimination. And he's done it quietly and humbly. If I can transform you know, his point of differentiation a little bit to business, he's taken all that and just the way he gets his company to work, going back to things we discussed in, with LX Group, I read recently, it says, in the company, expects innovation to happen throughout the company, not just from the innovation team, right? Not just from the product development team, but everyone must innovate. I also like the fact that he does it in a, in a much quieter way than, than people like Mr. Musk, but they are... Constantly innovating, his, his stock line is that anything is possible. Go back to my analogy about building capital markets on Mars. Go back to first principles. Apple has always done that. Tim Cook has kept that going. And I think he, he spends most of his time, and I believe it or not, I think most CEOs just spend most of the time thinking about the future of future products. So I know that Apple and Tim Cook don't get any shout outs from the likes of David Mercer, but I certainly think he's an inspirational leader and the right leader at this time in history. Thank you for sharing. It's a really interesting example. And hearing you talk, one of the things that strikes me is for a lot of people out there who do exceptional things and deliver exceptional outcomes, what I think is a bit more unique is when the expectations are sky high. There is then delivering that when the expectations are sky high, that makes it particularly more, more challenging. So thank you, for, thank you for sharing that. Look, we're up against time. You're a busy man. Thank you very much, David, for joining us today and sharing your perspectives. It's been great hearing from you. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Hitton. I've enjoyed it. Good luck. Have a great day. Cheers. Cheers.